Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, a sniffly and slightly bunged up Chris Jordan. Today's interview has me talking with Dr. Sadie Hollins. Sadie is the head of sixth form at Lana International School, Chiang Mai, as well as being founder and blogger of the brilliant Wise Education. Having started the site's online magazine in the middle of last year, Sadie has now overseen four consistently compelling editions that offer advice on all things well-being within international school education. In the interview, we discuss an introduction to her career to date, one or two articles from the magazine that have challenged Sadie's preconceptions, the need for international schools to offer holistic development of the students and staff, how different cultures see mental health with regard to Southeast Asia, how to establish a well-being policy in new schools, or if one is currently lacking, practical methods of evaluating the success or prevalence of a well-being culture in an educational institution, and finally, recommendations or simple strategies for students and teachers' well-being that can be implemented in the short term. Thanks again to Sadie, who raised some really important talking points that perhaps don't get discussed enough in schools by staff or students respectively. Everything we mention in the podcast, as well as the magazine itself, can be reached in the show notes below. Okay, Sadie. For those thinking about a move abroad, a quick introduction to your career to date, please, and current roles at both Wise Education and Lana. Yeah, sure. So um, I've, I've kind of like, I don't come from a, a kind of pure teaching background. I've, I've done a few different things before I ended up out here. So um, my, my initial background was that I did a, a PhD and did a, a postdoc, a research position and um lecturing in the UK so I used to teach in sports studies um, and then following that uh, we just me and my wife had kind of a, a difficult time at home so we ended up moving internationally and uh, before going into an international school I kind of did a few things out here in, in Chiang Mai um, one of them was CrossFit coaching because I come from a sports background um, but I think the thing the turning point for me was um, I worked in a like an addiction rehab out here uh, as like a support worker and I interned in the psychology department so like following that I ended up uh, moving into a support role at my wife's school um, where I work now so now I've kind of worked coming up through a support pastoral kind of position um, into like university and college counselling um, so that's that's what I do now so I'm head of sick form so I'm not like coming from a teaching background I, I have like yeah, I, I not come from a teaching background. It kind of feels like a slightly different uh, head of sick form than you would get maybe in, in uh, a more traditional sense. But that's my uh, my current role. And then Wise Education, um, I started in lockdown. It's just me and uh, I'd say my wife part time. <laughs> she she, um, she, uh, she bless her. She has to like edit and proofread stuff. Um, so that's like a, a blog and a and a magazine that's related to. Um, issues to do with like well-being and just kind of broader social issues that relate to, to international education. The um the centre that you worked at for addiction and, and rehab and stuff, is that the cabin? Yes, it is. Yeah, oh, yeah. Weird. That's so weird. Like I was obviously I was doing my research for the uh the podcast, of course. 
and I came across that name and I think my I'm pretty sure I'm a hundred actually I'm a hundred percent sure my friend spent time there for like alcohol rehabilitation and he absolutely loved it he out he, he was over the moon too and he he sort of a few years later he, he kind of relapsed and the first thing he said was just send me back to 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 the cabin or Chiang Mai and Thankfully now he's like a successful uh, screenwriter and all this kind of thing hasn't touched a drop in years and yeah that was, that was I haven't heard that name for so long when I was doing the research but um, how did the 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 newsletter slash magazine come about what led you to what sort of brainwave or um, what was the the catalyst for that? Um, it kind of just started as a as a conversation with my my boss at the time um, that we. I mean, I wasn't kind of like in the know in terms of at the time I wasn't on Twitter, I wasn't on LinkedIn, I wasn't kind of getting access to the articles like I now see. Um, but I just kind of felt that there wasn't much out there in terms of like PSHE pastoral type information articles that relate to international education. I just think it's a very it can be like very, very different from a from a UK context. So um that was like one conversation and then alongside that, um we started a well-being newsletter at our school during the lockdown period. Um, we wanted to kind of share articles, share information, share tips with students um, and families and also have students share their own tips with other students. So we, we started that newsletter um, and then we just kind of thought, oh, maybe maybe there's something in putting that together and having uh, a magazine or, or a newsletter that, um, yeah, just just shared information in terms of pastoral provision and, and well-being more more generally so it was just kind of a bit of an experiment following doing the newsletter from school really really enjoyed it I was just seeing like if there would be buy-in if people would be interested in doing it so um yeah just kind of led from there really a really successful experiment so far I'd say I've read um there's, there's been four publications now correct me if I'm wrong I've um I read them all cover to cover in the last few weeks and um, for anyone who hasn't read it, it is pretty essential reading, I would say, from an international schooling background. Because like you say, we don't really get a lot of provision, certainly at my school, um, in terms of well-being. And also, we're kind of in new territory when it comes to uh, COVID and everyone having to stay at home. Um, just in my case, personally, having to be locked up with um a new baby for like two years at the same time as working sort of six seven hours a day it was it was um definitely kind of food for thought when I was reading it but you yourself when you um obviously you're you're curating it or editing it or putting it together is there any one or two particular articles that challenged your preconceptions on a particular topic or purely proven eye-opening in some way when you read through it? Yeah, do, do you know what? Uh, when I uh, was thinking about this, um, I really, I mean, I really enjoyed all of them and reading all of them because um, I definitely have my interests to do with well-being, but it's really cool to have um, people submit articles on things that I'd never even think about, you know, like early years and speech and language de development and delays as a result of the pandemic. Um, but I think the thing that stood out for me is what I've tried to do with the last few issues um, is have like a student contribution. So um, they're kind of centered around identity and well-being a little bit. So I think for me, the student contributions have been really eye-opening. Um, 
because I think as educators, as teachers, as people working in education, um, we can often do a lot of talking on their behalf, discussing on their behalf. Um, and it's really, I find it really insightful to hear it from their perspective, um, like Dylan Ahmed, um, he wrote an article in, in the most recent issue about the complexities as coming out as a, as a trans student. Um, and then a couple of issues ago, we had um, uh, twins that wrote about their experience of um, kind of their conflicting identities in terms of being both Thai and Australian, being an international school and like having to file away different pieces of information as like, oh, this is what you do in a Western context. Yeah. And, you know, this is what I do when I'm back, you know, in a more Thai context. Um, and I think what I found really interesting, particularly um, as well with the the, the discussion with um, Benita and, and Barali is that they're students that I know and, and they're students I've had this conversation with. And um, they were like, oh, no one's really ever asked about mm. that. We've never really spoke about it. It's just something that you do automatically. You kind of figure out how to act, how to behave in, in different settings. Um, so um, I think, yeah, for me, definitely the student contributions have been, uh, been really opening. I think one of the articles by Laura Davis or Davies, uh, sorry, Laura, uh, offers the idea that um, she says basically that a lot of international schools pride themselves on extracurricular programs because uh, it's obviously, I'm not sure about uh, Thailand or Chiang Mai, but it's largely like a free market economy, isn't it? It's kind of like trying to pull in as many uh, customers for lack of, well, for lack of a better word, in terms of the parents, in terms of um, their extracurricular programs, but they might overlook, as she says, the holistic development of the students themselves. You've commented quite um, a few times. I saw you speaking on a, a bet forum and in the actual kind of newsletter itself about what international schools have to do to sort of um, improve in terms of their well-being. So. How is this unique to international schools as opposed to those in the UK, like you mentioned before? Um, I think uh, Laura's my wife, actually. So uh, I've had this All right. All right. <laughs> had this is it Davis or Davies? Uh, Davies, I think. I always ah, say it wrong okay. as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Um, I think like what the discussions we've had around it is, I guess that international schools are like, you're saying that they are a business they do have to um they put on like incredible extracurricular programs you know it's everything that you could ever ever dream of in terms of like what students have access to what they're able to take part in um but i think whereas at home i think you you put it on for the students definitely in international schools there's an element of you put it on for the school and the business um and I, I don't mean that too cynically because I think, you know, without um, uh, the money and the support that you get into national schools, you just wouldn't be able to run these things. You just wouldn't have the time. Um, but I think I think that's definitely like it's just making sure that these programs are done for the right reasons and not done just for marketing purposes. Um, and it's a fine line to tread because, you know, as well, you want to be able to showcase the things that you, you're doing at school. You know, I think um, that's important as well. But definitely the business marketing side of, of international schools makes that kind of a, a bit of a tricky balance. Mm, yeah. Um, in terms of the, like, coming back to the point you made before about the students who were writing for the magazine, 
in your experience, how how have you seen different cultures approach mental health differently? Do you think Thailand or Southeast Asia or any other cultures that you've come into contact to through the school or, or through the cabin or what have you differ compared with a more Western or UK mindset? Yeah, it, it's an interesting one because, I mean, our, our school is predominantly Thai, um, half Thai um, and has a, a growing Chinese population. Um, but I think, you know, being in an international school, the students are also growing uh, a westernised mindset in, in mm. some sense. So, like, I think when we talk about well-being with them, um, you know, a Western perspective is quite like individualised. Like, what can you do to help you, you know, self-care, that type of thing. Um, and I think maybe they are, students can be a, a bit more willing and open to talking about things that they're struggling with. You know, they might talk about self-harm. They might talk about feeling depressed. Um, but I think, I mean, from my experience in, in my school, I think in terms of culturally here, there isn't that, uh, it's very hard to access kind of counselling and, and talk therapy. So it, it seems to be quite heavily like medicalised. So students will get referred, they'll go to a hospital, they often yeah. get on med- medication quite quickly. And um, so I think that doesn't kind of, that's a kind of a, a tension with, you know, what we might think is like, no, they, they need to be talking to someone, they need to be learning coping skills to manage how they're feeling. Um, medication is like a last step, you know, or, or a part of a, a broader uh, treatment plan. So but I think with, uh, I like when I was researching for an article around this, I know there's, there is a lot of shame and, and stigma around mental health and anywhere in the world. Um, but I think definitely, I, I think you can feel that quite acutely in, in Southeast Asia. Um, I think things tend to be kept very much in-house. Um, you don't go talking about your business to, to other people. Um, but also I think that can be a really great sense of support. Whereas in the UK or, you know, and, and kind of Western cultures, um, maybe the family dynamic can be a little bit more fractured. I think here, you know, family is everything. Um, Mm. So you do always have that support in some sense, but maybe you don't have the support and being able to like talk about some of the things that you're struggling with. Um, So I think what I I kind of find sometimes find is a difficult is like students are taking on what we're kind of telling them in terms of wellbeing discussions or what they're getting from us. And then maybe that kind of conflict with what they're getting from home is like, oh, actually, no, you don't talk about it. And so yeah. it's like, well, which one do I do, you know? And um, I feel like there, I don't know what the solution is, but I feel like there's a gap there. You know, they are very different ways of approaching mental health and, a well, and well-being. And I feel like international school students are kind of often like stuck in the middle a little bit. I think that the, the medication point you made earlier is really um prevalent in Hong Kong I would say like I've sort of uh, you know I've got like a mild case of either anxiety or depression or whatever and when I went to the psychiatrist the first time um it was just yeah no worries let's get you started on Zoloft let's get you started on Lexapro let's get you started on whatever and at the time I didn't think anything of it but you know years later after I put on you know quite a significant amount of weight and all this kind of thing and I thought yeah I'm generally quite happy now I'll try and get rid of it 
um, try and like wean myself off it um, with the help of the doctor. Um, once I stopped taking it, I realized that I just kind of went back to exactly how I was feeling before. And I'd never really taken the opportunity to blow off any steam by, by talking to anyone or by, um, so it, it's, I think in terms of that reserved nature that we often kind of stereotype certain Southeast Asian cultures with, it, it is quite an easy solution to. And whenever I went to the doctor's clinic, it, it wasn't like there was kids in there or people on, on their own. It was always mum and dad were with them or, you know, wife and husband. So clearly the family was supporting them, but it was very much like, let's just take this pill and keep it on, on the quiet, which... Um, yeah, that's a really enlightening thing to hear that maybe medication should be further down the line as opposed to the the, the first step towards um, recovery. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on, Sue. Yeah, no, I think like just I know there is more more happening around mental health awareness in um, in Thailand. Um, but I, I think and, and, and I know in, in kind of Southeast Asia more generally, but I think it's that thing sometimes uh as well like the power dynamic like if, if you're going to a doctor a doctor is seen as above like they can fix your problems so yeah. um that makes like sense you know it's kind of like right I'm I, I care about my child I care about my family I'm trying to do what's best I'm going to go to someone that knows how to make that better so um I think yeah it's just changing that mindset of like mental health isn't something that you fix it's something that you manage um mm. and so just kind of raising awareness and having discussions around that do you think it's also kind of in the absence of the um i'm not sure about thailand but with the absence of anything like the nhs in the uk um because it, once again in hong kong uh, medication's pretty much a free market so if i turn up to a psychiatrist and say i, I, I feel pretty down and he or she re refers me to a therapist well that's not in the long run going to make them I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know, imply that everyone has this insidious kind of approach to to medication. But at the end of the day, it's a free market economy, and they've they've got to make their, you know, they've got high rents to pay and things like that. So, do you think that's got a part to play in terms of the NHS is such a big force in the UK for good? Yeah, I think I think so. I think that that idea of like it's it's less readily available in the yeah. UK um for, for whatever reason whether that's culture whether that's partly you know there's a lot to spend out on right you know like they, yeah. they they don't want to give up things too easily unless it's really really needed and I, and I kind of like appreciate that um yeah. but yeah I think I mean I think the, the NHS has some like yeah really incredible work around this but I definitely think there must be a tension there must be a pressure to do that and I think um it's 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 a hard thing isn't it like as a medical profession to be like I can't fix your problem yeah and um that's what I've been trained to do right like as a medical doctor I'm trained to pick up identify problems treat them um and I think mental health is that thing of like that it's not so clear cut mm. so it's changing your mindset around what treatment would look like yeah Mm, yeah um okay in, uh, coming back to sort of the school context then i suppose if there was a school which let's say for example we've uh, started a new school in hong kong or thailand or japan or wherever and we want to implement a 
an approach to well-being or like a well-being policy um, and we don't have um, much to go on in terms of how to get that started, what would you advise are the first steps leaders can take towards establishing such a policy? Jokers, this is a really good question. I was thinking about this. I was like, oh, do you know what? I just really don't know. Um, <laughs> it, I suppose it depends on the context, but... I think... Um, I think that uh, this is a discussion from my, my wife, and I think what I think with with well being is, um, you know, in my experience, a lot of the the good well being practice that's done. Uh, this isn't a criticism of our management, but a lot of the the good well being practice done at our school is driven by teachers that are passionate about it, and um, I think well being like it's become a buzzword. It's become something that. Um, schools and leaders are now kind of increasingly knowing that they need to pay, to pay attention to it. There's an increased burnout. There's just increased discussions and increased awareness around teachers feeling burnout um, rather than kind of just working themselves into into the ground. Um, but I think it has to come from a genuine commitment from management to see the value in it. If they don't see the value in it, it's really hard to implement anything that's kind of meaningful and worthwhile and is not just purely driven by by teachers so I think um however that process of change happens for for leaders to really see the value and actually we need to do this because if we don't do this we're going to lose good teachers you know um if we don't do this um people are just going to turn up and do the minimum because they don't feel valued they don't feel respected they don't feel like um it's worth it anymore that you know everyone will reach a, a saturation point so I think it has to come from a real genuine buy-in from from leaders and I think in terms of policy um yeah like you say it's, it very much has to be content uh so context specific so yeah. it's it's really hard to know what is right for that particular school um but I think, I mean, what the advantage that international schools have is that they do offer a nice life. You know, you move abroad because you want a nicer life. Mm. Um, and I think allowing teachers to enjoy that, there's no point moving here if they're going to have exactly the same experience at home of like stressful observations all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, not constructive um, feedbacks, uh, feedback around that. Um I think that the difficulty I find in terms of a well-being provisional policy in, in international schools is is um, the fact that they are some of them are businesses as well, mm. and so they have competing priorities. Um, teachers are coming to do one job. Managers, owners of the schools have um, take that into account, but they also have a different goal in mind. Whether it's to to grow the school, whether it's to, to open a different campus, whether it's to grow a brand. Um, but I think what I'd be curious to know is is to see so international schools take on um, to have a look at what's being done in businesses to help yeah. promote well-being because I think you can't take the kind of approach necessarily from the UK because they are quite quite different. Um, so yeah, that sorry, it doesn't really answer, answer the question. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's I think there's plenty of talking points there. I do think. Um, I, I suppose like well-being looks very different I would imagine in a primary school versus a secondary school or even sixth form um I think you know 
doing one of those occasional kind of um, scrolls through Twitter or LinkedIn, what I've, I remember seeing a few days ago that there was someone, I think it was one of the international schools in Amsterdam or, or in Holland, that there was like a, a student experience officer. Like that was the title of this person's job. And I was like, wow, that's a thing. I've seen like pastoral head teacher or, um, you know, de- deputy principal in charge of whatever. But I was, I think that's, that that goes a long way, I think, to enshrining um, how important something is in the in the symbolism of the school or the rituals of the school. If you've got someone who's in charge of staff well-being or student well-being or whatever, and they're pretty present they're like visible rather within the school that's that can be quite important yeah um I think just uh I think that's really interesting I think to, just to add on to um Chris I think I I would have concerns you know like the spotlight the attention is on well-being at the moment I'd have concerns say in five years time if a school needs to make cutbacks and international schools are these weird things because they can just continue thriving so maybe like that position is kind of secure but I know you know like if you're in support or kind of even like not in necessarily in core subjects I feel like you always feel like is my job always going to be secure you know if they stop like running that A-level or if they downsize the provision in some way so I think having that but embedding that within the school vision for well-being so like your five-year plan is to ensure that they have that person in place and that these are the kind of things that they're going to do it makes it harder to take it away so I think embedding it some way in in a formal kind of um, document that you're you're having these people because this is the vision of the school going forwards yeah that's uh, yeah that's really really prevalent for I think any country or city which is facing political uh, foibles let's say in terms of like Hong Kong for example we've got uh, literally hundreds of students have left the school, my school this year, and I'd be surprised if it wasn't the case for most other schools. And it's not because um, they don't like the school; it's it's obviously due to the kind of the the instability that the the city has at the moment. And surely that's going to be that's probably not just specific to Hong Kong. I imagine that's the case for certain other um, cities and countries as well. And yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say if you lose. 150 200 300 students well 90 percent of your revenue often is getting spent on staff wages who's the first person who's gonna go um yeah i'd really like to think that it wouldn't be um you'd like to think that the last person um to kind of be on the ship would be the person who's in charge of making sure that well-being is at its premium so um yeah that's certainly um food for thought i would think yeah um in terms of uh, another quite sort of difficult question to answer then, it, let's say there is a well-being um, strategy, policy, protocol within the school. It's well enshrined within the symbolism of the school or, you know, there's visible things around the school, the way the teachers talk, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's generally well established. Coming back to what you said before about how well-being or mental health can be quite difficult to uh, gauge um what are practical methods of evaluating the success of such a well-being culture or protocol is it possible to quantify it for lack of a better term how can you know that it's it's going well 
in your experience? Yeah, I mean, that's super, a super interesting question. Um, something that our school has done that I think I can, I like is, um, is that we've started the, the TES Pulse surveys. So like they're, um, I mean, they're super regular. Like I feel like they come out all the time. Um, <laughs> but um, related to well-being in the school, and I don't quite know how it works, whether if you answer a certain way, whether you then get certain questions the next time or, or we've all got the same questions. Yeah. But um, I quite like that they're anonymous. So I think it, it has to be anonymous in order to, like if you've got a, a problem in a school, um, it's really hard to share that openly. Um, and it's really hard to share it constructively because, um you know, it, it, it will grind people down. So I think having a, an anonymous forum is in, is important unless you've got a culture where you feel, um, which I think will take time, you feel safe sharing your thoughts and your experiences. But I think um, having a broad survey is at least a start to get a gauge of actually what are the experience of teachers in the school and not just what they're telling us face-to-face. Um, mm. So I... I I think um what do you do with those results then say is it kind of do you not publish them per se but do you present them to the staff as they are or is that just in, like, for management to consume or do you know what I so we only just we've just started so I'm um like a participant in the survey so yeah I think that's the thing I'm like that that's really nice like I you know I, I love to express you know my thoughts on on different things both like positive and negative or, or kind of constructive but it's kind of like what you do with that is what's important so like if you just do it for the sake of doing it um I think people will pick that up quite quickly and then they just won't okay. put the effort into it you're like all right here goes another survey um so I think that allows a real reflection for to take place for, for leaders and what they do with that will be quite telling of what the school's about of what the leader's mm. about so whether they they choose to to present it whether they then open up a forum of like well, look actually I, you know we didn't realize that this is a problem we didn't realize this is really how you were you're feeling and um you know I, I, it's hard because I appreciate as a school you can't do everything to please everyone but I think just identifying when there's core key or common themes um mm. and trying to do something about it or getting views and opinions from teachers of like how could this be better um I think it's important but yeah I think it's what you do next that's important it's it's great that you know people ask our opinions but there's no point asking it if you're not going to do anything with it um what, what was the app that you were, have I dreamt this, Sadie, or were you mentioning an app on the uh, the BET forum that you did a couple of weeks ago about something to do with getting feedback from the students or the staff? Um, there's There's been a couple of um, apps that, there's one, well, Wellcheck was a, was an app that um, Jodie Miller uh, did an article about in the, in the last um, Wise Education magazine. Um, there's been a few apps. The name escapes me right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, I, th- I think we haven't been able to successfully roll out an app yet. And um, I think timing is really, really important. I think when we looked at develop, uh, like kind of rolling it out, it was partway through a year anyway. 
And um, so I, I think apps hold a lot of promise in terms of like student feedback to a degree. Um, but you really have to get buy-in. So I, I don't know. I feel like if you if you roll it out with year 12 and 13s, it doesn't matter what you do. They're just not going to do it. Yeah. So um, I think you almost have to start it like at the lower, uh, like upper end of primary and roll it up through the secondary school so that it kind of becomes a, a common yeah. thing. I suppose it's just another medium for, um, if, if it is just about taking questionnaires or getting feedback, it's not to say that they can't just do that on the laptop anyway, I suppose. It's not like you need it to be an application on the phone. Um, yeah, okay. Um, in terms of, uh, I've, like I said, I've read through the, the four magazines and some of the, the articles I kind of took away thinking, ah, if I'm a form tutor, next year or if I'm ahead of year then I'll look to sort of share these things or implement them and etc whereas some of them are um for more designed towards like adults or teachers and I've actually tried to sort of implement them myself so the kind of I can't I didn't write down the gentleman's name who wrote it but uh, he wrote an article about cold and hot showers do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, um, I've kind of been experimenting with that. <laughs> I was I, I kind of, I think I read something about Wim Hof or something a few months ago, and I always wanted to start doing it. And the first few weeks are torture um, in terms of the cold showers, but I really, it's 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 quite good now. And then I saw a documentary about like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, and apparently he does it all the time. So that was me sold on uh, um, kind of alternating the cold and the hot showers. But is there um, are recommendations generally when when you make recommendations? Let's say for secondary students and teachers' well-being. Are they largely the same? Uh, are they different? And what simple strategies would you recommend for, for both of them or the respective groups in terms of getting through a stressful kind of IGCSE, IB, A-level, whatever um, course? What are the top tips that you've got, say, in terms of for students and or teachers? Yeah, um, again, I probably like, it's probably like a, a terrible <laughs> terrible answer probably not that helpful um I think like I think they are similar like in terms of um teachers and students to, to some degree um I think like something I, I'd kind of thought about and, and written about um a little while ago was this idea of having a, a well-being fingerprint so it's your well-being um profile what's important to you is very very individual so I find sometimes with um, articles that, that have tips about, you know, make sure you drink enough, make sure you sleep enough, all that kind of thing. I think, you know, that's great. Um, but it, I find it like, oh, on top of everything else, I've got to make sure I do this, 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 this. And yeah. uh, you always get like this kind of well-being perfectionism, like, I think you, that you can kind of worry about a little bit. Um, but I think this idea of like um, a well-being profile, I was really listening to a, a podcast um with I think it was Krista Scott Dixon from Precision Nutrition and she was saying about like pillars of deep health which kind of very much resemble well-being it's just kind of uh terms slightly differently but it's figuring out what makes you well what makes you better and uh, what is that for you so like um you know giving back doing community service um I think is really important you know mm. but for some people that really fulfills a sense of purpose for other people it's something they feel they have to do because if they don't do it like people will view them as 
you know not being a good person or people say you've got to do something that's meaningful with your time Mm. so I think like um figuring out what that is for you you know some people like I really used to love exercising um and I I still think it's important but like (laughs) now (laughs) I actually get I actually like sitting down writing is something that Uh, is helpful for me creativity yeah yeah and I and I so I think figuring out what is for you both for teachers for students and allowing them to figure that out for themselves so what do you go to when you feel stressful or when you just want to feel better or when you um what do you do that helps you feel better um and not just doing it to feel better but it's something that you actually enjoy um I think a lot of it is around like conversations around productivity and like output and work and I think that's the same for teachers and, and students. We both get into this trap. Like what I find myself reflecting on is the thing I hate about being pushed all the time or, or even pushing myself to and kind of feeling that burnout looming is like we're not doing exactly the same for students. Like when you go home, you should be doing X amount of hours work every night and, you know, yeah. you should be taking on feedback. You should be always trying to improve, improve, improve. Um, and whilst I feel that that's true, I feel like you can end up getting them to push back a little bit on it. It's like, so you're, you're, I don't know. I'm not saying this is strictly true, but sometimes you can feel like people are nicer to you when you do better and you do better because you work yeah. harder. Yeah. Um, so I think um, just having healthy conversations around that and trying to like instill a kind of intrinsic um, motivation around doing work because it actually is, actually what makes them feel good not just you get praise from other people um so I I think in terms of like strategies I I think it's just kind of figuring out what what works for them and I think also having that discussion of like just because it works now it won't necessarily work in future like it's something that you have to keep tending to keep coming back to um and that and that's okay and as soon as whatever you're doing as soon as it starts making you feel like bad or you feel like oh, I have to do this maybe it's time to switch it up you mm-hmm. know like that's clearly not working anymore and and that's okay um so I, I I would say that and I think for teachers um it's not necessarily a, a strategy but I think for me in terms of my well-being it's when I feel like really like valued at work um mm. when I'm and it's not just that like praise it's it's kind of when you don't feel like a cog in the machine you know when you feel like you really have an impact on the school and when it's when it's noticed as in you know like we like having you here because you have an impact on the school so um I think that's that's really important feeling valued I think feeling safe I think um a lot of I've just kind of wrote recently I think what you're saying about international schools at the minute um some of them are, are, are losing a lot of students there is that kind of stress um and I think we I think inter- uh, working internationally I don't know about you I feel kind of like quite vulnerable like what if I got you know like what if I lost my job was what if it wasn't renewed you know what if it, it was the school was downsized yeah. um so I think it's that fear about your job also being in a country that isn't your own I think particularly during the pandemic, um, being away from home, you kind of feel quite vulnerable. So um, whatever you can do to create that sense of safety um, 
at the minute I think uh, for teachers I think that's really important particularly being away from home so I, it's probably a, a terrible long-winded answer um, and again uh, I probably didn't give any recommendations in there um, as such but um, yeah. No I agree with you in terms of the acknowledging that teachers do make a difference is huge um, people um, it's it's that old cliche of if you ask students what teachers they remember from secondary you know ex-students if they're you know in the 20s or 30s the only teachers I really remember there are the ones either who were overly harsh or very very supportive I don't really remember the ones in the middle which is terrible um, and I think it's the people who make you feel like you've made a difference or that you stand out in some way and I think yeah it, it is different for, for teachers and students because obviously you're I suppose more self-motivated or you've got more self-concept as a teacher you know what your role is I think as a student that can be really stressful because I'm okay at maths I'm okay at science I'm okay at English and Chinese what what makes me special like how am I how do I stand out from everyone else and um, I do think that's where maybe well-being and extracurricular maybe academic can can come together where it's where it's um allowing students the platform to shine or to sort of acknowledge their strengths or their contributions to the school is huge but um it can get lost in in the mechanism of the international school i think you're absolutely right it's we've got to make a certain amount of money every year we need to um promote the school how do we do that well this is our average IB score. This is our average A-level score. Your son or daughter can come here and play rugby. They can play hockey. They can play polo, whatever. Um, and I think, yeah, it is, it's it's a tough, it's a, it, it's a tough ask. But I think if you can um, acquire or generate some recognition for teachers and students, it's not so different in terms of making them feel motivated to come back to, to work or school every day. I think you're right. Or you could just take a cold shower in the morning and that's quite good. <laughs> it works. It does work. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's like an interesting one. Like with, um, I mean, maybe I'm probably just going off on a, on a tangent, but when I think about international schools, when I think about marketing, like you go on any Facebook page of any international school and it's, you know, it's the things that they do best, which, which is great um but I you know you're saying about the kind of IB scores A-level scores you think oh who are the students that get promoted and they're they're your top students right they're they're your high achievers they're your talented athletes and um you know what about the kids that aren't those top students you know what message does that send to them when the people getting promoted or or the people that are getting praised non-stop probably anyway you know not saying that they don't need it um, but it's kind of thinking about what what's the message that we're trying to send. Is it just about eliteness, and mm. or if it, is it just kind of generally, you know, developing good, kind um, uh, students through through the school? Yeah, yeah. We we do have an initiative at our school currently, and I can kind of see where it's evolved from. Where if you win anything outside of school you know whether it's a robotics competition whether it's a, a swimming competition whether it's this or that um you basically get awarded with it on stage and on on paper like in theory it sounds like a really nice um initiative you're, you're showing recognition to those students who've done well but in practice sometimes it can feel like a bit of a conveyor belt the kids aren't always listening um 
Sometimes they are. Don't get me wrong. It depends. If, as it, if it's been a slow week, then maybe, maybe not. If it's near the start of term, much better. But And there's this really bombastic music playing and it's incredible. And our auditorium, we're lucky enough to have this incredible auditorium. But um, sometimes I'm a bit like, this is, uh, I can see where the idea came from, but I'm not sure whether all of the students are buying into it. Does every student kind of sitting in, in, in the rows who never get up on stage really feel like this is enough impetus or initiative for me to um, want to try something outside of school or within school to get on stage? Um, and that, But that's really tough. And it, it sounds a little bit like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to say that I've got all the answers or something, but it's, I think that's a really difficult thing to instill in every student or the majority of students even. So, um, yeah, it's it's certainly something which I think I'll try to focus on the more, you know, my career progresses and stuff like that. And um, I think continuing to read the Wellbeing uh, magazine that you put out uh, is is also a good step to, to try and make that balance between um well-being or pastoral and uh, extracurricular academic stuff within the school yeah so um but i suppose all that remains for me to say Sadie, is uh thanks so much for joining me today and the relief that you provide people through your work more broadly um i hope the situation in thailand can improve a little bit over the coming months i know that you're kind of back in a lockdown now so i hope that it can improve for you and uh, the other the teachers and the students and that kind of thing and um yeah uh best of luck with everything to come in the rest of the year thanks so much chris and yeah thank you for having me i really appreciate it okay cheers bye-bye